On April 20th, 2001, Jim and Veronica Bowers, who were missionaries, were flying with their six-year-old son, Corey, their nine-month-old daughter, Charity, over the Amazon jungle in a Cessna plane. Uh, Their pilot was a friend, Kevin Donaldson, and they were over the Amazon jungle. Well, they were intercepted by a Peruvian Air Force jet on an interdict mission, and that jet mistook them to be a drug plane and shot them down. A bullet killed Veronica, age 35, by going through her back. She was holding her daughter, nine-month charity, in her arms. The bullet stopped in charity, killing her instantly, too. Donaldson, the pilot, had both of his legs injured. One bullet whizzed by Jim's head, barely missing him. And somehow, Kevin was able to ditch the plane in the middle of the Amazon River. Jim was able to get his son Corey out and get Kevin out, put tourniquets on Kevin's legs and then retrieve the bodies of his wife and little girl. And they floated there for about 45 minutes praying until some villagers nearby got in a canoe and were able to come and rescue them. What do you say to a young widowed father whose infant daughter and wife were killed by a government mistake. What's he supposed to think about that? What's he supposed to do? Jim Bowers and his family had given up all the comforts of America and chosen to go live in the Amazon jungle for the sole purpose of making disciples for Jesus Christ. So how does he make sense of this devastating loss? What should he say at his wife's and baby's funeral? Well, what should Christians think about any painful events that occur in our life? How do we process them? How do we respond to them when the loss seems senseless? Is there a purpose in our tragedies? Is there any reason to find hope in the midst of what seems to be just chaotic occurrences in our lives? I mean, why does God let such things happen? Well, some pastors and some teachers say that tragic events in life have no purpose. They just happen. John Sanders is one such teacher, a longtime Bible college professor in his book, The God Who Risks, writes this, Some evil is pointless. God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. The popular Baptist pastor and theologian Greg Boyd in Minnesota concurs with him. He has written in his book, God of the Possible, It is true that things can happen in our lives that God didn't plan or even foreknow with certainty. Things can happen to us that have no overarching divine purpose. To look for reason or to have hope of some kind of the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy, tragedy that is caused by someone else, Boyd goes on to write elsewhere, is a piously confused way of thinking. 
Well, the text that we come to this morning in our study of the book of Romans speaks directly to these questions, to this issue, to this subject. And as we will see, what God inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Romans 8.28 directly contradicts what Greg Boyd and John Sanders and teachers like them say as they misconstrue God's providential oversight of his world. Our text is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's on page 944 in the Bible that's provided in the seat backs in the chairs in front of you. And I encourage you to get a copy of the scripture in front of you so that your eyes can actually read the words that God himself inspired Paul to write as we meditate on them for a few minutes together this morning. I want to read from verses 28 down through verse 30 because these verses go together. They, they are a unit, and God willing, we'll come back to the last two verses next time. But hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God providentially rules and overrules everything for the welfare of his children. That's what verse 28 teaches us. You'll note that verse 28 begins with that conjunction, and which indicates that Paul is continuing a line of reasoning that he began in the very first part of this chapter. If you go back and just read over Romans 8, beginning in verse 1, you'll see that he describes life in the Spirit for Christians as a life of no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. He assures us that we will be raised bodily by the Spirit just as the Spirit raised Jesus Christ bodily in verses 9 through 11. He assures us that we are indeed, because of Christ, children of God. And by the Spirit's indwelling presence, we are enabled to call upon God, Abba, Father, in the most intimate way. And he tells us that even though we suffer in this life, we do so in Christ. And we do so with the Spirit, so that our suffering is not wasted. Our suffering is in ways that God will use. And the Spirit himself, who lives within us, intercedes for us. And he does so perfectly, in perfect harmony with God's will. And, Paul then writes in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There are three truths in this one verse that I want to highlight for us this morning. First, noting that God providentially governs the world. All things work together for good. He providentially governs the world. By providentially, I mean that God is meticulously active in the way that he directs his world as he governs it. All things. Some object that things don't work. God works, and so this verse should be construed, God works all things together for good. Well, that's certainly Paul's meaning. He's not ascribing any kind of personal power to things. 
But what he is teaching us is that God is so personally involved in every aspect of creation that everything that is, is under his active, direct control. This is an all-inclusive statement. Nothing that is outside of God is outside of his careful, precise control. This includes, I should say, specially includes those difficult things that make us suffer and groan, as Paul has just written about in verses 17 through 27. What Paul is doing is simply making a statement here that is foundational to the biblical understanding of God. Both Old and New Testaments describe God in these terms, in terms of his meticulous ruling in his world. For example, in Isaiah chapter 46, listen to what God says. I am God. There is no other. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. And the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is a God of meticulous providence. Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew chapter 10. Before he sends his disciples out to minister. He encourages them. He's trying to keep them from giving into fear. So in verse 29 of Matthew 10. He reminds them that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Things as insignificant as sparrows, birds of prey, things as consequential as a man of counsel, all of these are being ruled and overruled by God in the way that he governs his world. Our own confession of faith in this church, the confession that was put together by the London Baptists and published in 1689, summarizes this very teaching in the third chapter. This is what it says. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. That's a glorious truth. It's taking what the Bible says and just summarizing it in a way that, that we can begin to digest it in our minds. I, I hope you see it. And I hope you believe it. Because it is indeed true and it's foundational to biblical Christianity. But beyond that, it's one of the most comforting truths that you will ever come across that's ever been revealed to us. To deny this truth is to de-God God. It is to say that the God who is, is not the true God. But to recognize this truth, to live in its light, is to find help. It's to find strength. It's to find joy and hope in the midst of all the ups and downs of life. I like what R.C. Sproul has said in his book, Chosen by God. He writes there, if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free from God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee 
that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But there are no rogue molecules. They are all being meticulously governed by God. And because of that, we can be sure that every promise of God will be fulfilled, including the promise in Romans 8, 28. But this verse doesn't just talk about the universality of God's meticulous government of his world. It also speaks of the purpose of that government. He says, God causes or all things work together for good. In other words, it's not haphazard. It's, there's a cogency to what is happening in our world. God is governing his world and our lives in the world for a purpose. He's doing so according to a plan. And the end, the goal of his providential working, the purpose for which he is working, is good. God has a good plan, a good design. And he is carefully, meticulously ruling over every square inch of the universe, every molecule in it, in order to bring about this real good. Just like happens on a construction project where subcontractors come and start doing their work, and if passerby might look at what they're doing and think that they're working in disunity and even working at cross-purposes at times. But as they fulfill their jobs, they are working to accomplish the goal of the architect, the goal of the project manager. And when they finish their jobs, that goal is realized. It's good. It's purposeful. In a similar way, God employs everything that happens in this world, all things, to work together to fulfill his purpose and plan for the world, to bring about that which is good. God providentially governs the world. That's the first truth to note in our text. The next is that God providentially governs the world for the welfare of his children. While God's rule over his world is universal, the specific purpose, the good for which he meticulously governs the world, does not apply to all people without exception. The people who God has in mind and for whose good he is ruling the world are his people, his children. And do you notice the way that Paul describes the children of God in this verse? He does it in two ways. He does it from the perspective that we have, and then he does it from the perspective of God. He says they are those who love God. That's the human side of this description. What does it mean to love God? What's involved in it? Well, it certainly means there's a genuine affection within for your creator, your redeemer. There's a devotion that you have for God that goes out from your life toward God. It's an active, ongoing desire for God. It affects you inwardly. But it's not just emotion. It's far more than that. Love is not just something you feel. Love indeed is something you do. And love for God always manifests itself in living according to his will. Jesus teaches us this in John 14. Twice he underscores this very point. In verse 15 there he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then later he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You see, you can't love God 
and disregard the will of God. So here's a wonderful way to do some self-examination to see if you genuinely love the Lord God. Do God's commandments mean anything to you? Is your life characterized by obedience to what God says in Scripture? Is your relationship to God based more on convenience than it is on conviction? Do you joyfully see yourself as God's slave and submit yourself to His will? Why do you think Paul used this phrase? those who love God, as a description for Christians. I mean, why not say those who believe in Jesus Christ? Well, it's appropriate to say those who believe in Jesus Christ because that's what Christians do. But I think by calling attention to our love for God, he's highlighting the nature of a Christian's relationship to God. You see, love for God is at one and the same time the most basic And the most sublime attitude and direction our lives can have toward God. It's possible to have a type of faith in God. A type of faith in Jesus that really doesn't unite you to Jesus. In John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. At the end of that chapter we get this commentary that many people seeing the works that Jesus did believed in his name. They had faith. But John goes on to tell us, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in a man. He didn't need anybody to tell him what other people have going on inside. You see, you you can have a type of faith in Jesus that does not unite you savingly to Jesus. In James chapter 2, James tells us that even the devils believe in God. They have faith and they tremble. It is a faith, but it is not saving faith. It is not the kind of faith that unites you to God. Mere intellectual belief is not enough. So you may say, or others that you know may say, well, I've always believed in God and be telling the truth. I've always believed in Jesus. And be telling the truth. And yet that in and of itself. Is no assurance. That you know Christ. Savingly. The real question is. Do you love him? Are you devoted to him? Are you keeping his commandments? A second reason why I think. Paul describes Christians here. As those who love God. Is because of the assurance that that gives. Why do we love God? You who love God this morning, sitting here, why is it that you find yourself loving God this morning? Well, John tells us in 1 John 4, 9, right? We love him because he first loved us. So if you love God, you can be sure that God loves you. Otherwise, you wouldn't love God. And if God loves you, You can be sure he is going to take care of you because you are his child and he will move heaven and earth itself in order to get you all the way home just as he has promised. Christians are those who love God. 
That's a good description from our perspective. But Paul adds a second description by speaking from the divine side of things. Yes, we love God, but we're also those who are called according to his purpose. Called. Theologians distinguish from the scripture's teaching between a general call and an effectual call. The general call is what we see in the scripture every time the gospel is proclaimed. It's what happens every year, here, here every Sunday when Jesus Christ is set forth. There is inherent in the good news of salvation for sinners that is accomplished by Jesus Christ a call to trust Jesus Christ. It's general. It goes out every time to every person who hears the gospel. Some of you have heard the gospel thousands of times. Every one of those times you have experienced the general call of God. It's what we see in Acts chapter 17 verse 30 when Paul preaches Christ to those Athenian philosophers And then he says, and now God commands all men everywhere to repent. That is a general call that goes out to all who hear. But that's not the kind of call Paul's talking about here. Here he's talking about what theologians call the effectual call. This is that call that comes with the Spirit's power to give new life whenever the gospel is proclaimed. This is that call that results in a person turning from sin and humbly trusting Christ as Lord. This is the powerful work of God to make a hearer of the gospel a Christian. This is what enables us to turn from sin, to overcome the hostility that we experience against God that Paul has written about in verse 7 of this 8th chapter of Romans, and to be transformed into those who entrust ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, and to love God. Verse 30 that we will look at next time, God willing, makes this point very plain that this is what Paul is talking about here, those who have been called according to the purpose of God. So the question is, have you been called like this? I'm not asking if you've heard the gospel, but have you heard God address you personally in the gospel? Have you been so overwhelmed in the hearing of the gospel that you realize you must turn from your sin? You must trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Are you trusting Jesus now? Are you following Him? Do you love Him? Are you living in accordance with His commandments? Do you hate your sin? If you can't answer those questions honestly with yes, then your greatest need this moment, more than your next breath, is for the mercy and grace of God to come to you, for God to open your ears that you might hear his voice and realize he is calling you right now to turn from your sin and to trust the Lord Jesus. God's brought you here for this purpose. So why in the world would you harden your heart? Why would you shut yourself off to that? But cry out to God, acknowledge to Him that you need Him to do for you what only He can do. Confess your sin. Throw yourself at His mercy. Trust Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners and He will save you. Turn from your sin. God will accept you for Christ's sake. And you will know personally what it means to be called effectually according to His purpose. Well, what is that purpose? 
What's Paul mean by his purpose? What's the purpose of God? The scripture teaches that overarchingly God's purpose is to manifest his glory in his creation. Specifically to manifest his glory in the salvation of sinners. To show the kind of God he is to the whole created world, seen and unseen, by taking those who are rebels against him and turning them into children who love him, who delight in him, who live for him. Paul summarizes this in the first chapter of Ephesians. And there's a few verses there that kind of encapsulate everything that he's written before. Ephesians 1 verse 11 and 12 where he says this, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He works everything according to the counsel of his own will, governing his world meticulously so that we who trust in Christ, we who hope in Christ, will be to the praise of his glory. The very first question and answer of the shorter catechism, again, summarizes this truth. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not two ends, not two purposes. One, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't this amazing? Brothers and sisters, God has so designed the world that as we turn from our sin and trust Jesus Christ, we bring glory to him and we experience the benefits, the joy that comes in the process. All things are working together for the welfare of of God's children. When God called you to trust in Christ, he pledged himself to be your God. And he pledged to do everything necessary that you would be his children. He determined and promised that he would work for your welfare through every step that you take in this world. That means that as a child of God, trusting Jesus, that you are under his protective care. Nothing can touch you apart from his will. Nothing can come into your life unless it is first passed through the hands of your loving heavenly father who gave up his son for you. We learn from the first book of Job or from the book of Job in those early chapters when the devil comes and starts bragging before God that that the devil couldn't touch Job's possessions couldn't touch Job's family without being given permission from God. He couldn't touch Job's health until God gave him permission to do so. In the New Testament, we see that the forces of nature, wind and wave, they cannot rock the disciples' boats One second beyond Jesus standing up and saying, peace be still. Weather obeys our sovereign Lord. It did in the first century. It does today. Anything that you do, anything that anyone can do to you, brothers and sisters, will be orchestrated by God for your good. He guarantees it. 
even evil things, even sin. I mean, the Bible's filled with examples of this. Perhaps the most amazing is in the Old Testament is the story of Genesis, or the story of Joseph in Genesis, the, the last 14 chapters of Genesis. I mean, Joseph is the delight of his father. His brothers hate him, and so they sinfully take him, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery. It's sin, it's wicked, it's evil. He, he loses his life in his home with his family. He loses his freedom. He winds up in Egypt, a slave, a house servant. And the master that he serves in Egypt has a wife that tries to seduce him. He's a righteous man. He won't, he won't give in. And so then she accuses him of trying to rape her. What did he do to deserve that? And he winds up in prison. But while in prison, he comes to the notice of Pharaoh and through engagement with Pharaoh is raised up to the position of second in command in the whole Egyptian kingdom. And we learn at the end of the story that God was doing that because God was going to send a famine to that whole region. And because Joseph was in second in command in Egypt, he was able to provide food for his family. And keep them alive. At the end of the book. When his brothers are. Somewhat rightfully. Terrified. Their dad has died. And they're having to deal with Joseph. They go and prostrate themselves before him. And this is what Joseph says to them. As for you. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about as that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God used the evil done against Joseph for Joseph's good. And get this, God used the sin and the evil perpetrated by his brothers for their good. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this incredible? As we love God, as we who are the called according to his purpose trust God, we can be assured that God will rule and overrule everything in the world for our welfare. Of course, the clearest and most dramatic example of God doing this is in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus was wickedly sinned against. He was unjustly arrested, maliciously mistreated, brutally beaten, contemptuously crucified. And yet, in that greatest miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen, God was working. In fact, God was orchestrating the events according to an eternal plan. He was doing his greatest work in behalf of his people. He was working through the death of his son to secure the forgiveness of our sins and our reconciliation to him forever. And when Peter, weeks later, preached about this event at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this is what he said, that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified, to be killed by the 
wicked hands of lawless people. Brothers and sisters, the cross stands as a great paradigm for us, reassuring us that the God who was ruling and overruling everything that that took place in the death of his son is working just as meticulously today for the welfare of his children, for the welfare of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. So again, I ask you, do you love God? Are you called according to the purpose of God? If so, this promise is for you. God is working all things together for your good. And he is going to continue to so work to cause everything that happens to you in the future to redound to his glory and to your good. Now, this promise is exclusively for Christians. Oftentimes, people will misapply Romans 8, 28, appropriating this verse to themselves or their loved ones by saying something like this. Well, you know, we know that everything is going to work out for the best because the Bible says all things work together for good. But the Bible doesn't say that all things work together for the good of everyone. If you refuse to trust Christ, and be reconciled to your creator through the Lord Jesus, that the things that work together for the good of God's people will work together for your everlasting damnation. The promise is for those who love God. So you can be sure that this promise is for you by turning from your sin, trusting Jesus Christ, following him, Loving God, growing in his grace and knowledge, living according to his commandments. Well, God providentially governs the world. He does so for the good of his children. The last truth that I want to call to your attention is that Christians know this. That's how Paul starts the verse. And we know. We know. Five times in Romans Paul uses this little phrase, we know. It is to underscore the certainty, the self-evident reality of that which is seen and seeable, knowable, is known by those who are in Christ. Now think about the truth of this verse. It's a glorious truth and it would be glorious even if we did not know it, if it had not been revealed to us to have God working everything together for the good of his children and then not to find out that he has done that until later after the fact. I mean, that would still be amazing, wouldn't it? But how much more glorious that we can know this truth right now because God tells us this has been true, is true, it will be true. We can stake Our lives on it right now. We can respond to every circumstance with this confidence. We can live by faith. We can take risks for the glory of God. Knowing that as we do so in faith, that God's going to work everything together for our good. Now, this is no license for foolishness. But it is incredible motivation courageousness to venture out in doing what God has revealed, trusting him with whatever consequences might come. 
Brothers and sisters, in this verse, Paul is not saying that everything that happens to us is good. Wicked things happen to God's people. Just like wicked things happened to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Just like wicked things have been happening to God's people throughout history. Being a Christian does not shield us from suffering, from the groaning that results from sin in this world, sin in our lives. Paul's just elaborated that in the verses prior to our text. But as a Christian, we can know that even those things, together with everything, is being worked for our good to make us more like Jesus. This glorious truth has been wonderfully summarized in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Eight days after Veronica and Charity were killed by the Peruvian Air Force, 1,300 people gathered in a small town in a Baptist church on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan for their funeral. And during that funeral, Jim stood up with six-year-old Corey on the front row. And this is what he said. Most of all, I want to thank my God. He is a sovereign God. I'm finding that out more now. Could this really be God's plan for Ronnie and Charity? God's plan for Corey and me and our family? I'd like to tell you why I believe so. Why I'm coming to believe so. Ronnie and Charity were instantly killed by the same bullet. Would you say that's a stray bullet? It didn't reach Kevin, who was right in front of Charity. It stayed in Charity. That was a sovereign bullet. He went on and talked about the men who fired the bullets. And he expressed forgiveness to them. He said, how could I not forgive them when God has forgiven me so? And then he said, those people who did that simply were used by God. Whether you want to believe it or not, I believe it. They were used by him, by God, to accomplish his purpose in this. Maybe similar to the Roman soldiers whom God used to put Christ on the cross. Where does such thinking come from? Is this piously confused thinking? How could Jim Bowers say these words and mean them? He could say them because he believes that God is indeed 
providentially ruling and overruling everything in this world for the good of his children. He can say it because he believes what Paul wrote. That we know for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow to you this morning. We acknowledge that we have looked into truths that we would dare never believe if you had not revealed them. It is hard for us to believe that you would think about us and care about us with such meticulous ruling and overruling of our lives. We thank you for giving up your son for us and for the life that we have because of his death in our behalf. We thank you for the hope that belongs to us and knowing that as you have given him up for us, you will continue to provide everything necessary for us. God, I pray for those here who have not turned from their sin and trusted Jesus. They don't know your love. Oh God, speak to them. Call them with that call that cannot be denied. Turn them from sin. Draw them to Christ. Establish your kingdom in their hearts and minds. Make them followers of our Lord and Savior. Hear our prayers. For Jesus' sake. Amen.